Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that it's by your grace and your mercy that you enable us to walk through difficult times in this life. We are so thankful that you sent your son to take the ultimate suffering. Indeed, that very second death that we were destined for before your grace came to us so that we can suffer now knowing that we will not suffer for eternity. I would ask, Father, that in light of this particular passage that you would bless my brothers and sisters here who are currently suffering. Those who are going through difficult times because we live in this fallen world and those who are struggling because of their faith in Christ. I ask, Lord, that these words would not fall on deaf ears, that they would not be heard as hard or insensitive, but rather, Lord, I I ask that you would take this letter written to Smyrna so long ago and you would use it to empower us, not to take away the suffering, Father, but to equip us and empower us to live as faithful saints in the midst of it. I ask that you would do that, Lord, to bless my brothers and sisters here, not only to bring them the comfort that only you can bring, but to enable them to be the most brilliant testimonies, the best witnesses to Christ in this suffering world. We pray as well, Lord, for all of our brothers and sisters who at this very hour are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. As we had a chance to pray for our Persian brothers and sisters who are facing 10 plus years in prison this morning and the countless others throughout the world, we ask, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, be with them And if able, Father, even use this passage to bring them comfort and strength in the midst of their persecution. Father, we want to to be brilliant testimonies to your grace. And so I ask that you would, by your Spirit, equip us this morning to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when you see the title of the sermon that says Suffering Well, you probably thought, hmm, okay, maybe I, maybe I need to get ready for this passage. Um, you heard it read, the letter that Jesus gave to the Apostle John to deliver to the church at Smyrna. I hope that even in the reading of it, you found encouragement and maybe even some strength, especially if you are suffering right now. Pain and suffering, whether we like it or not, it has revelatory power. When we are going through difficult times, it exposes our hearts. It makes our hearts known to ourselves, and it makes our hearts known to a watching world. The cancer patient fighting for her life will show her true colors as she goes through the misery of chemotherapy by being kind and gracious to her caregivers or by lashing out in anger at those who are only trying to help. The lonely single who wants to be married will make his heart known by either being satisfied in his relationship with Christ, the ultimate lover of his soul, or by desperately chasing after any prospect who will look his way. 
pain and suffering, whether we like it or not, it exposes our hearts to ourselves and to the world. And this exposure is particularly true when Christians are suffering because of their faith in Christ, as we see today in the church in Smyrna. Last week, we heard Jesus instruct the church in Ephesus through the Apostle John, and he praised Ephesus for perseverance and for their orthodoxy, but then he rebuked them for abandoning their first love, their love for God. The second letter that Jesus commands John to write is to the church at Smyrna, and Smyrna was 40 miles north, also on the coast of Ephesus. The letter to Smyrna, along with the letter to Philadelphia, they both stand out in that they're the only two letters of the seven where there's no correction, there's no rebuke, and there's no call to repentance. And so what we have here in Smyrna fundamentally is a letter of encouragement and a letter of instruction. It's a letter that called them and still calls us today to persevere in the midst of extreme suffering because the crown of life is what awaits all those who are in Christ. It calls us to persevere and to walk through suffering in such a way that the watching world will know there's something different about us. Remember, if our suffering exposes us, then it will expose the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world as they see us suffer. It is a letter that is certainly applicable to the persecuted church today, but I would also say it's applicable to you if you're going through suffering of any kind right now and you are tempted to turn away from Christ and turn to an idol to find some immediate comfort or something to soothe your pain, it's telling you don't do that because there's no hope in an idol, not now and certainly not in saving you from the second death. So let's have a look at this remarkable letter that Jesus dictated to John that John was to take to Smyrna. And I want us to consider two things that I believe every Christian should consider. Number one, the call to suffer. That's your call to suffer, and that's our call collectively to suffer. And number two, the power to suffer well. How do we do it? It's one thing to be called to suffer. It's another thing to be able to suffer well for the name of Christ. So the theme of the sermon, again, it's very simple. By conquering death, Jesus empowers us to conquer suffering. By conquering death on our behalf, Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, enables you and equips you to conquer suffering in this life. Now that would be, that would be I believe, a compelling reason for anybody to want to listen closely. Because you have suffered, you are suffering, or as the Bible says, you will suffer. And what a glorious thing to have power, resources from God to know how to do it well. Not just eke through it or barely make through it, but to really suffer well for the glory of God. Amen? Point number one, the call to suffer. Look at verse eight. Jesus is now speaking in his glorified state, speaking to the apostle John. And he says, add unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus is now, this is the second letter of seven that he's asking John to pen to go to the city of Smyrna. Now Smyrna, as I said, was 40 miles up the coast from Ephesus and it was the rival city of Ephesus. It had a population 
in the time of John, probably early to mid-90s A.D., of over 100,000 people, and it was known as the crown jewel of Asia Minor. It was the place that you wanted to be. If, if, for example, because Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, if Ephesus were our Sacramento, then Smyrna would be our Los Angeles, where people would gravitate to because of the location. It was renowned for its libraries and sciences, and so it attracted scholars and academics. It was famous for its theaters and art, and so it hosted a culture of actors and musicians and artists of every kind. It was distinguished for its architecture and its politics, and so the power shakers, the movers of the day, were in Smyrna. It was so popular that in 26 AD, Emperor Tiberius made Smyrna. There were there were nine or 11 applicants for this title, temple warden, and Tiberius gave it to Smyrna. And so their job as temple warden was to guard and protect the cult of Tiberius, of Livy, and of the Senate. In other words, Smyrna was a very serious city when it came to the practice and enforcement of the emperor cult. If you were going to be in Smyrna, you better worship the emperor or there'd be consequences for your actions. So it was in this context that Jesus tells John to pen this letter. In the context of wealth and power and beauty and religious fervency, Jesus says this. Look at verse 9. He says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus immediately, remember, he's standing in the midst of the lampstands, and he says, I know what you're going through. And he identifies three ways that Smyrna was suffering that he says, I understand. He says, I know your tribulation. In other words, I know the persecution you're experiencing because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You continue to proclaim the gospel. You continue to make disciples. You continue to add to your church. And for that, you are being persecuted severely. Jesus says, I know your pain. Secondly, he says, I know your poverty. Smyrna was a very, very wealthy city. One of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor. And it was likely that some of the Christians in the church were wealthy at one point in time too. But because of their profession in Jesus Christ, they lost their wealth. You see, Roman, Roman officials, they, they were good. They imposed economic sanctions on professing Christians. If you didn't worship the emperor, then you were going to suffer economically. And that meant not being able to engage in the buying and selling of goods in the marketplace and not even be able to hold down a job. So they were a poor church, a suffering church economically. But Jesus reminds them in the midst of their poverty, he says, remember that although poor economically, you are spiritually what? You are rich. And he says, you're rich because you have me. You're rich because you have the kingdom. You're rich because all the treasures of heaven already belong to you, even though you don't grasp them yet in your hands. So he says, you're poor, but you're truly, truly rich. So Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And then he said, look at the latter part of verse 9. He says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, at this time, Judaism actually, they enjoyed protection under Roman law. They were allowed to practice their Jewish beliefs and not required to submit to the worship and the sacrifice of the emperor cult. 
for decades, Christianity enjoyed that protection too. That Christianity was seen as a sect underneath Judaism or in Judaism. But the Jews in Smyrna decided they were going to use that to their advantage. And they were not only going to, when it says that they, they slandered the disciples of Christ in Smyrna, it meant they not only were turning them in, they were going to the Roman officials and pointing them out and saying, this one's a Christian, this one's an emperor evader, not worshiping. But they made sure there was a clear distinction between Judaism and Christianity and said they do not deserve the protection that we have. They're not real Jews. They put their faith in this man named Jesus Christ. And so Jesus identifies them. Jesus did now as a synagogue of Satan because they were adversaries of God's people. And if you're an adversary of God's people, you're an adversary of God. So times were hard for the faithful in Smyrna Severe persecution, severe economic hardship. They could barely put food on the table. They didn't have roofs over their heads. And they were being betrayed by those who claimed to be followers of the same God, of the same Bible. So what does Jesus do? I mean, you would think of Jesus as our great comforter and the great shepherd that he'd come along and he'd say to the church in Smyrna, all is well, be calm, don't worry. Christ doesn't do that. He actually says, it's bad, and it's going to get worse. Look at verse 10. Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And they probably thought, wait a minute, we're already suffering. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he tells them not to fear, even though they're about to suffer, And they're not just going to suffer, they're going to suffer at the hands of the devil himself. (laughs) My beloved, I read this and I thought, you got to be kidding me. If someone comes to you in the midst of your suffering, and they say, oh, by the way, today, tonight, you're going to be persecuted by the devil himself in your home tonight. Do you think you would go home and have a good night's sleep? Do you think you'd just watch out and say, ah, no problem, And then this brother or sister said to you, don't be afraid. You said, are you kidding me? You've terrified me. I'm not even going to go to my house because maybe then he won't show up. The devil was going to use the synagogue of Satan, the Jews who were persecuting the Christians and the Roman authorities to arrest and throw some of the Christians into prison for not bowing down and worshiping the emperor. Now, the prison system in the first century was not like ours. We We use it to punish people by sending them to prison for years and years. It was used then for two primary purposes. One, to break the will of someone, to get them to capitulate. And so some were going to be thrown into prison and said, listen, there are going to be consequences for your action which are severe if you don't bow down and worship the emperor. So they were thrown into prison to get them to do something. Or they were thrown into prison to to wait for their trial or their execution. So going to prison meant something. It wasn't just you're going to go and you're going to wait and be punished. It meant something more severe than what we know of prison stays today. These would have been very difficult words for a church that was already suffering to hear that more suffering was coming. So was our Lord just being cruel? Did he want to pour coals upon His children in Smyrna? You say, well, of course not. Christ doesn't ever do that. And he doesn't leave them empty-handed. He provides them 
in this first section with two resources, and you probably picked up on it already. The first thing he says, he says, listen, there's going to be a purpose for your suffering. Look at the latter part of verse 10 again. You're going to be put in prison that you may be what? That you may be tested. Now, that's not tempted. That's tested. They be put into prison by the devil to be tempted to sin. But God was allowing them to be thrown into prison to test them to growth. And God does this all the time, right? To, to make his children stronger in the faith, more mature in the faith, more like what? More like Christ through our suffering. In fact, James made this eminently clear. A couple of verses I don't think we care for much. We read it and we push it away. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You think, hmm, all joys. How do I consider it all joy? James tells us, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, as Christ is. Now our suffering for Christ whether we like it or not, is one of the most powerful means of grace. God uses us to transform us as sinners saved by grace into the image of his son, into sons and daughters fit for the kingdom. We know this to be true. If you've suffered for Jesus and you've suffered well, you've come out of that with a closer proximity to God, a greater love for Christ, a greater sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know that, but we don't like it because we don't like to suffer. Yet we cannot deny the power of God making us holy through it. And when we know there's a purpose, my beloved, to our suffering, and we know it's God-directed, that He's the one that's doing it for our good to make us holy as He is holy, there's power in that. There's power in knowing that. Fifteen years ago, I blew my shoulder out. I mean, just wiped out my right shoulder. And I, my boys were still at an age where I wanted to throw a baseball or throw a football or play basketball with them. And so I went to the surgeon, and the surgeon said, oh, we can, we can fix you, but it's going to be a hard road getting you back. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's a procedure we do on, on baseball players where we literally cauterize the shoulder soccer and we freeze it up. And I said, well, that, that doesn't sound good. And he goes, no, it's not good initially, but if you work really hard for one year, going through lots of pain and suffering, you'll get your shoulder back to how it was before your injury. And I thought, hmm, one year. So I said, well, how bad will the pain be? He said, excruciating. There are tons of nerve endings in your shoulder socket. And I said, well, how excruciating? He said, it won't be unlikely if you don't pass out multiple times during the PT. And he was right, and I did. And I thought, well, I have little boys they want to play, and so I did. For a full year, I went through that, and he was right. At the end of the year, I could throw a baseball and throw a football again. Uh, the purpose of the story is what? If there's purpose behind the suffering, you, it's easier to get through. You can endure it. You can endure it. There were times when I literally sat outside the, the office, and I didn't go in. <laughs> I thought, I can't go in today. I can't do it. can't do it. And I did. I ended up making it in, but it was because there was a greater purpose for it to enjoy that time. How much more should the purpose of our suffering for Christ, if we know that it is God directing us to be holy as he is holy, sanctifying us from the inside out, making us fit as sons and daughters, how much more should that purpose enable us to endure? So much more than just wanting to throw a baseball with my boys. There's a second resource that Jesus provides here. 
and he tells us the duration of the suffering. Did you notice that? Look at verse 10 again. Jesus said, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And you think, oh, ten days, it's a week and a half. He didn't literally mean ten days. Remember, numbers in the book of Revelation often do not mean the literal number. The ten days was going to be symbolic for a relatively short period of time. In other words, it was the same as him saying, it's not going to last forever. Now, this did not mean they were going to go to jail for a short period of time and be released. He made that clear in verse 10. He said, be faithful, what? Unto death. So some of them were going to go to jail. Some of them said, we're not going to bow down to the emperor. And as a result, some of them were going to die. But here's the salient point and the word of encouragement and the power that God gives. Either way, for the Christian, suffering in this life is short. Suffering for the believer always ends. And so he, he tells them about that duration because when we know that there's a limit to our suffering, we can handle that too, can't we? If someone said it's going to last this long, that gives you strength too. The mother anticipating childbirth knows that she's going to suffer. And I've actually heard some of my sisters go, I can't believe I'm that close. It's coming up again. And yet we have multiple children because every mom knows that that suffering's finite. That suffering doesn't last forever. For my students who are slogging it through a 16-week semester course, and you're halfway through and you're thinking, I can't make it. I can't go one more week. Yet you know you can because you only have 16. There's an end to your suffering. <laughs> it's the same for the believer. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Peter said, after you have suffered, how long? A little while. After you've suffered a little while. Now for some of us, that may be our whole lives but it's still a little while. If you suffer from the moment you can remember, four, five, six, until you live to be 95, that's a short time, a limited span of time relative to eternity. 1 Peter 5, 10 again, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, listen, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Well, that's the promise you have. So for the Christian, all suffering in this life is finite. And we can say all suffering is finite, period. Even if it means many years for you, it will come to an end. And such knowledge, I do believe, I do believe has some power to it. Knowing that there's a purpose behind our suffering and there's a limit in time to our suffering, that enables us to go, okay, okay, there's a reason God's doing this. It won't last forever. That gives us some strength in the midst of it. So things in Smyrna were going from bad to worse, and Jesus says there's a purpose for it, and there's a time limit to it. Do not be afraid. But I want you to notice something, I think, very telling for our cultural moment. I want you to notice something Jesus does not tell them to do. He does not say to the church in Smyrna, flee for your lives, Leave Smyrna. He doesn't tell them to take up arms and fight against the Romans or the synagogue of Satan. He doesn't tell them to remove their lampstand and go partner with Ephesus or Pergamum or, or Thyatira. He doesn't tell them because you will experience persecution and be treated horribly, flee the city and create your own isolated culture somewhere else. He doesn't say any of those things. And this certainly would have been their temptation, would it not? 
withdraw, circle the wagons, go into survival mode. No, Jesus says to them, do not be afraid and be faithful unto death. Stay right where you are. Stay right where you are. Jesus makes it clear that in this situation, flight or fight were not an option. Fighting and flying and fighting were not an option. It was not an option, my beloved, because, now listen, to our Lord, the physical, financial, or emotional well-being of the church has never been his primary concern. It's not that he's not concerned, it's just not his primary concern for his church on earth. Glorifying God through our suffering, that's a primary concern of the church, Jesus Christ. Being faithful witnesses in a hostile world, in the midst of our suffering, is a primary concern for Jesus Christ. Us remaining faithful because we trust God and we trust Christ in the midst of our suffering is a primary concern. After all, how could they, how could they be the salt and the light? How could they be the lampstand of Christ in Smyrna, transforming the culture with the gospel of Jesus if they fled left Smyrna altogether, or they took up the sword and spilled blood? How could they share the gospel? How could they be a living witness to the truth and the hope and the love of Jesus miles away or with blood on their hands? They could not, my friends, and I would argue, nor can we. They had to stay and persevere if they wanted Smyrna saved and the culture reclaimed for Christ. They were called to stay and suffer. Now before we go to our next point on how a Christian can do this, I want you to notice the contrast between the Christians in Smyrna and the tens of thousands of Christians today, even in these last few years, who have fled places like New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, Seattle, many of whom claiming that the persecution in those places was too great or the persecution that was coming would be too great. What would they say to Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna? Would they say that Jesus got it wrong? That he should have told the Christians in Smyrna to flee? Or would they argue that our cultural moment is so different that we're suffering so much more than Smyrna? I don't think either would make sense. In his Olivet Discourse, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke of these last days. Listen to what he said. Speaking to the disciples and all those who will come, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who flees, And not the one who takes up the sword, but the one who endures, the one who stays the course, the one who remains faithful in the midst of suffering, Jesus said, will be saved. After the Apostle Paul was run out of Antioch and Iconium, hopefully you remember this, and then nearly stoned to death in Lystra, we're told in Acts chapter 13, what did Paul do? He returned. He returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, listen with all your might, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Our very salvation, my beloved, was purchased not by our Lord fleeing the cross or taking up arms against Rome, but by enduring the suffering of the cross, by suffering in our place. Friends, it is difficult in light of so many New Testament passages as well as our Lord's words to the church here in Smyrna to justify, I believe, the mass exodus by Christians out of supposed blue cities and blue states, places that so desperately need the gospel witness to the political safe havens of red cities and red states where most of those communities are already gospel-saturated. Hard to argue biblically. So the question is not, I do not believe, do we stay and fight for the lost in the midst of suffering? Do we work to transform the darkness of our cultural moment with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't think that's the question. That's a question I think baby Christians can answer very simply. Of course, it's yes. It's not to fly out. It's to stay. The question is, how do you do it? I mean, how... How do you suffer well for Jesus? How do you go through the pain and misery, not only of living as a sinner in a fallen world, but then the pain and misery of professing your faith, of sharing the gospel and making disciples and being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ in the midst of a world and a culture that hates Christ and hates his church? That is the question. Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the power to suffer well. The power to suffer well. How do you do it? Jesus says at the beginning of verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. That was the devil coming to put them in prison. And then he closes verse 10 by saying, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I think it goes without saying that suffering and death are probably two of the biggest problems mankind faces. Saved and unsaved. Suffering and death are the most difficult aspects of being human. We were made, my beloved, by God originally without sin. And so pain and suffering were not part of God's original plan for mankind. You weren't supposed to experience it. And so suffering and our hatred for it, it's natural. It's natural to hate suffering. It runs contrary to our original design. And because physical and spiritual death were also not part of God's original plan for us, When we do experience it, or we're told as Christians to expect it or to not be afraid of it, those truths, those statements rub against us. And they they rub against us because we were made to live forever. We were made by God not to suffer and not to die. And therefore, imperatives like this, do not be afraid, be faithful unto death, they seem at times impossible. How can Jesus say this to us? How can he tell us not to be afraid of suffering? We don't like to suffer. And how can he say, be faithful unto death when we don't want to die? How do we hear these commands given to us by our Lord and not say to ourselves, cannot be done? I can't do it, Lord. How do we endure? And in so doing, bring honor and glory to Christ. Now, I would argue that that I've already given you two resources that are helpful you know, if, you, if you're in the midst of suffering and you know that there's a purpose for it, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 20, you know that, and there's that sense of purpose, that's good, that's helpful, but I do not believe, I do not believe that's sufficient to get you through really hard times in the midst of dark 
and deep suffering, knowing that God is working through it and doing it for your good is not sufficient. I do not believe. Nor do I believe knowing that it is temporary is sufficient either. As most of you know, in the midst of extreme suffering, an hour or day seems like an eternity. And you're crying out, Lord, make it end. I don't believe knowing that it's temporary is sufficient either. They're helpful, but not sufficient. So what does Jesus offer the church in Smyrna? And what does he offer us today that can take these seemingly impossible imperatives to not be afraid and to be faithful unto death and make them possible for us? I mean, I I, I like having spiritual resources that enable me to do the things that the scriptures call us to do that I think to myself, I can't do that. And of course, God always comes along and says, well, on your own, of course you can't, but in me, you can. Jesus offers the church in Smyrna and every believer who has, is, or will suffer, listen, real power to fuel your faith. Real power, real resources from on high to give you the strength to do exactly what Christ is calling us to do. He gives him, Jesus gives himself and he gives his promise. He gives himself and he gives his promise. So the first thing that you want to say, how, what is the means by which, we just had a chance to sing it actually, what is the means by which I can endure these things? Christ is saying, I am that means. Did you notice this? Look back at verse 8 again. Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now of all the glorious attributes of the glorified Son of Man listed in Revelation 1, Jesus picks two to highlight to Smyrna. And he does that with each letter actually. He's going to pick something that's going to bless them and encourage them and here give them strength. He says, I am the first and the last. And we looked at that. That was a designation of divinity. And so Jesus is saying, even though I am truly man, you must know that I am truly God. I am truly God. And as being truly God, I am sovereign over everything, all the details. Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna and saying to you today, he knows all the details. He knows about the poverty. He knows about the tribulation. He knows about the persecution unto death. He said, it's not happening outside of my purview. Quite the contrary. He's saying every single thing that's happening is happening by my decree. And Jesus says, and I'm good. And I love you. Now, if if Jesus is truly God and sovereign over all the details, and Jesus is truly good, and Jesus truly loves you, then there's strength and power in knowing that he's in control that no suffering and no pain in your life is a result of some random circumstance. The devil got in when he wasn't supposed to because Jesus is sovereign. But he doesn't just leave them with his sovereignty. There's a sense of that that is encouraging and empowering and there's also a sense he's like, yeah, but that seems so distant. It seems transcendent, far away. He reminds them of his sovereignty and then he reminds them and I think this is the, the most important part for us here, is that even though he's truly God, he knows our suffering. He knows our suffering. Not just he knows about it, he knows it because he experienced it in full. He said what? He said, I died and came back to life. I died and I rose from the dead. Physical death, Jesus experienced. 
physical resurrection Jesus experienced, and he did so in our place. In other words, he's saying, not only am I sovereign, but I know your pain, and I walked through it on your behalf. I did it already for you. He was saying to the church in Smyrna, and to all who have ears to hear by the power of the Holy Spirit, these things, listen. Jesus speaking now, when you go through tribulations and you're afflicted, remember, I experienced the tribulation of God's judgment for you. I was afflicted with the full wrath of God because of your sins so that you could be forgiven and set free and what? Not suffer the ultimate suffering ever again. Jesus says, when you experience poverty, Jesus says, know that on the cross, I literally was stripped naked and they cast lots for my garments. Christ knows poverty. Christ said, I lost my city, I lost my people, I lost my family, I lost my disciples, I lost my heavenly father. So that you, spiritually impoverished through and through, could be what? Could be made rich. So that through my sacrifice, you could have my father and all the blessings that flow from that. Jesus said, when they slander your name on account of me, Christ says, remember that I lost my name as the Son of God. He said, upon the cross, I was cast out of my Father's presence so that what? So that you, someone deserving of no name, could have a name and be brought into my Father's kingdom forever and never, ever again have your name slandered or taken away. Christ knows your suffering. Christ says, when you suffer for my name's sake, Remember the beatings that I took. Remember the stripes on my back. Remember the suffering upon the cross so that you could have rest now and forever. Jesus said, when you are tested, remember the test that I went through in the garden on the night that I was betrayed. When I asked the Father, is there any other way? Take this cup. Take the cross from me. Christ says, but I took that cross so that it could pass you. My beloved, there is great power in knowing Jesus like this. Not only that he is sovereign, the first and the last, but in knowing that he knows your pain because he literally took your death. He took the ultimate suffering that you were going to experience at the hands of God. He took the eternal death of the lake of fire. He surrendered his body to the grave so that death could have no power over you now or forever. And then he claimed the keys of Hades and death so that all those who repent and believe and put their faith in him could live forever. There's power to stay the course in knowing him. He is your sovereign, suffering servant. But there's one more here, and then I'll close. A second resource that I believe gives us great power as well. He made a promise. Did you notice that? Look at verse, the latter part of verse 10 and 11. Jesus said, be faithful unto death. Those who are going to be put into prison, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You say, well, what is that second death? How, how can we die twice? Don't you just die once and you go into the grave? How can you, you die twice? The second death, my beloved, if you know what it is, 
it should be your greatest concern. It should be your greatest concern. A fear that ought to literally, infinitely supersede all other fears you have. Because this is the great danger for sinful man. In fact, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 12 about the coming persecution, this is what he said. Listen. Jesus said, Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him, speaking of God, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. And then Jesus says emphatically, yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God. The second death is we will see In chapters 20 and 21 in this book, it is the lake of fire. It is the final and eternal judgment of all who remain in rebellion against God. And it is, my beloved, and this is not to diminish any tribulation or persecution or suffering you've gone through. It is the pinnacle of tribulation. It is the consummation of suffering. It is perfect poverty. It is eternal imprisonment. It is the second death that never, ever ends. A perpetual state of dying. The Bible describes it as a place where there is what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've always hated that phrase. Even before I knew Christ, when I heard it the first time, I thought, I can't stand that because you get the picture. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the place of perfect and complete and utter darkness. It is the place, the Bible says, where the smoke never ceases to rise, where the worm that eats the flesh never dies. It is the place where the flame is never quenched. It is the pinnacle of suffering. Not only because it's so bad, but it goes on forever and ever and ever. There's no relief from the suffering of the second death. There's no 10-day termination. No 10 days, no 10 years, no 10,000 years, but eternal suffering forever and ever. This is sinful man's greatest concern, or it ought to be. But did you notice what Jesus said to the believer? To the believer, Jesus said, latter part of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will what? I'll give you the crown of life. He said, you stay the course of faith. Make it all the way to the end in the midst of all your suffering and all your pain and what awaits you? The crown of life. He reiterates and affirms this promise in the latter part of verse 11. It's essentially a restatement. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who makes it faithfully to the end who remains faithful to Christ, even to the point of giving his life for the faith. Jesus says the second death has no power over you. You will die once, and then you'll be crowned with eternal life. You'll receive the crown of life. And that is, so what what is that? That's eternal life. It's you being with God in his kingdom with his people and his angels forever and ever. Not judgment, but the absence of tribulation, the absence of poverty, the absence of imprisonment, the absence of death forever. You will experience true rest, and oh, how we long for that when we're suffering, is it not? True rest for your soul, riches 
that will defy the imagination because heaven and earth will be yours. True freedom, no longer bound by sin, able to worship and love God and others perfectly. No sin preventing you from doing that. It will be joy, true eternal joy in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Do you see the power in this promise, my beloved? Do you see it? When you're persecuted or suffering, or maybe maybe someday we will face death as a consequence of our faith. You can know that Jesus took your second death for you. He took it for you. He bore the punishment we deserved on the cross. He did. He experienced for those three long, dark hours the lake of fire. That became his. So that death could not hold you. So that by grace through faith in him, you would not experience it yourself. He did it so that even though your physical body may die. It may be put to death by those who hate Christ and his church. They cannot destroy your soul. If you belong to Christ, your soul is already redeemed. And so they may persecute you unto death, and your body may go into the grave, but we know, and we're going to hear this when we get to chapter 20 and 21, Christ will come again in glory, and he's going to raise your body from the grave. He's going to bring your soul and reunite it with a new body, a new glorified body that will do what? that will be perfectly equipped to be with God and worship God forever and ever. No more pain, no more suffering, no more persecution, no more death. This is the promise that we have in Christ. There is so much power here, my friends, because of who Jesus is, your sovereign, suffering servant, and the great promise that he has made to all who remain faithful to the end. So I do believe that Jesus, unlike any other, can say to you and say to me and say to his church, do not be afraid, even if the devil himself is coming after you. He can say to us, be faithful unto the end because he has experienced it himself and he's now empowered us to do it. Christ can say these words and it's not insensitive. It's powerful. He can tell us to be courageous to stay the course, to stay where we are, to shine the light of the gospel precisely because he has experienced it, he has gone before us, and he now reigns. He suffered in our place and won our victory. And so I think we could say that even if we were to experience a thousand lives of suffering here, If that was to be our experience here on earth, we would have to agree with the Apostle Paul when he would say only light and momentary troubles is what we've experienced. And those light and momentary troubles, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, are achieving for us what? An eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That glory is the crown of life. It is life with God, with Christ, with the Spirit forever. No second death. The person of Jesus and the promise of Jesus has real power to fuel your faith, to stay the course all the way to the end. It has power to keep us faithful to a world that hates us. 
So when the world slanders your name because you love Jesus, when the world brings you harm because of your faith, you can stay a course and be a faithful testimony to the power of the gospel. Smyrna, Smyrna refused to compromise on their belief that Jesus Christ and not the emperor was their savior. And they were persecuted severely for their beliefs. But they did not flee and they did not take up arms. They, like Jesus, became suffering witnesses, putting on display for the world the power of the gospel to change sinners into saints. My beloved, if you are a Christian, you have been called and empowered by God to suffer for your faith. You have been. You're not exempt from it. You've been called and empowered, not only for your soul, so that you can persevere to the end, but for all those who will face the second death in your mission field who do not know about Christ. Smyrna understood the gravity, they did, of their being faithful witnesses to the lost in their city. I pray Christ Community Church will understand the importance of our gospel witness to the lost here in San Jose. And rather than flee or fight, I pray that we will boldly live for Jesus regardless of the cost, knowing that in our suffering, our hearts will be exposed and the world will see the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's no way that we can hear this call to suffer even unto death and think that we can do it on our own. We are so thankful that you have equipped us in your spirit to both know Jesus in such a way and believe his promise in order to have the resources to live like this. I pray, Father, you'd be gracious with us. That for those who are suffering right now, I pray that you would bring them the comfort that only Christ can provide. I pray that in the midst of their suffering, Father, they would be brilliant testimonies to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for all of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering this very morning, that you would remind them of the great promise that Jesus took the second death so that in our suffering now we know one day there will be no more suffering and no more death but only the joy of the presence of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in His kingdom. Father, equip us to be bold witnesses here knowing that we will suffer at the hands of our family and friends and our employers and the broader culture. But I pray that would not deter us. I pray instead, Father, that we would embrace that suffering, knowing that it not only shapes us into the image of your Son, making us fit sons and daughters for your kingdom, but what a glorious testimony to a world that does not know Jesus. Cause us to suffer well, I pray, for your glory, for your church, and for this community that so desperately needs to know you.
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.